I'm Elizabeth Slattery, and welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm sharing an interview with Judge Patricia Millette from the D.C. Circuit. We talked about her record-breaking career in the SG's office, how she got into taekwondo, and what it was like to watch her former colleague, Brett Kavanaugh, go through a brutal confirmation hearing at the Supreme Court. I'll be back next week with regular programming, but in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this special episode. Patricia Millette is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Millette. Thank you for having me. So you spent 11 years in the Office of Solicitor General, and combined with your time in private practice, you argued 32 cases before the Supreme Court. So first, can you tell me about your very first Supreme Court argument? So it was a case called Blessing versus Freestone, um, and it involved uh, whether there were private rights of actions to enforce certain provisions of um, the welfare welfare statutes. It was uh, payments to um, women uh, with children, and there was a requirement that um, they were supposed to cooperate with government efforts to enforce child support. So that was sort of the long statement of the issue. It was um, was memorable in many ways. Of course, it was the first argument, and it had extraordinary extraordinary stress associated <laughs> with that and uh, um, questioning, you know, am I really up to this? Um, but also uh, just my luck uh, after this case was granted, Congress passed a massive um, uh, reform statute, and so the statute itself changed significantly. So we were kind of briefing two separate statutory schemes at the same time. So it was a lot. And then the uh, the people, the state folks that were challenging the right to bring the action decided to add a number of constitutional issues <laughs> into their <laughs> brief. So it had it was it was quite a buffet of issues for a uh, first timer uh, up in the Supreme Court. But it was. Um, it was. I, I think I stopped eating. I think it was a Monday argument. I think I stopped eating about Friday, <laughs> out of out of nerves. Um, uh, but you know, I had done a lot of uh, court of appeals arguments beforehand, mm-hmm. and I have to say that once once court actually started, I, w- I was still, to be clear, extremely nervous. But I also felt a little more comfortable because I'm. I recognize the environment and the process. Um, I'd been in courts before. I'd been through the rhythm before. And so it was surprising to me. I hadn't anticipated it. Um, the atmosphere itself when I was there felt better. And when I stood up at a podium, you know, I was, felt more familiar with the process. And boy, did it feel good to have the first one done. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> Are there any other arguments that really stand out when you think back on your career? So it's really, you know, they're, it's like asking who your favorite child is. Um <laughs> You know, there were uh, um, every case is just incredible when you're in the middle of it. Um, I associate them with sort of different stages in my life. There was the first one. There was uh, the first one after my first child was born because I had been um, the type of person who just prepares and crams to the very last minute. In law school, I was the nerd who was still looking at her notes as she walked into the exam room. but suddenly, when I came home at night, even the, even the night before an argument, um, it was put the notes down and read "Good Night Men," uh, and I remember feeling that it felt really actually wonderful to turn my brain off and 
focus uh, on my child. And that was just something, you know, as a single person or even as a married pre-child person, uh, I hadn't had to do. So that was a big change. I had another argument right right before my husband was set to deploy. And so I felt like I was just drowning in stress mm-hmm. at the time. But it was good, you know, on the one hand, it's good to have something to pour yourself into. Um, and it felt good to see that I could still be my professional self while juggling everything uh, at home. And then I will say there was there was a case uh, called United States versus Stevens, which dealt with um, uh, images of animal cruelty and whether those could be banned and it's First Amendment issue in the case. Um, but for me, it was the first time um, in, it was in private practice that someone's liberty uh, was on my shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone who really wanted to stay home and be with his wife. Um, and so that was an extraordinary um, step to take in the laws when you start representing people whose liberty literally is in your hands. Um, and it felt, and I had, I'd worked on other cases, but I was, this was the first time I was you know, the lead arguing attorney in the Supreme Court in a case like that. Um, I have to say it felt as wonderful as it is just to win any case, the, the privilege of picking up the phone and calling someone and saying, uh, you don't have to go to prison, you get to stay home, was a very moving experience for me. I bet. So how did you end up working in the Solicitor General's office? Uh, grace of God. <laughs> grace <laughs> of God and uh, Walter Dellinger and Drew Days. So um, it was, I had, I'd been in the Justice Department doing appeals in the Civil Division for about four years, and I was to borrow a Midwestern phrase because I'm from Illinois, I was a pig in slop. I, I was as happy as could be doing <laughs> uh, doing appeals. But, you know, I had been working with the Solicitor General's a lot because, office a lot because um, I was arguing the cases defending the constitutionality of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act all over the country in the courts of appeals um, and in some state Supreme Courts. Um, and it was, uh, openings came up and I said, why not? I didn't apply because I told him I wasn't applying because I was unhappy. I'd be perfectly content to stay doing civil appeals. But what a challenge and what an opportunity to go to the Solicitor General's office and argue with the Supreme Court and also get to be a generalist and do not just civil cases, but criminal, environmental, tax, antitrust, everything that comes across. Um, actually, not tax at the time. They had a, a tax specialist, but... Um, to do every other matter of ca- uh, case that, that comes before the court, and to work with people that I idolized and revered in the law, uh, the people in the Solicitor General's office. So why not try? And I was so lucky that it worked out. <laughs> so speaking of working with people that you, you idolized in the law, uh, in your 11 years in the office, you worked with several Solicitors General. So who was your favorite boss? So I'm I'm just not going to get caught with that. <laughs> they were all, and you know, look, they were these were incredible legends in the law, and I was just privileged to work with with all of them, and could learn something from, learn many many things. But they all, because of their distinct styles, had you know special lessons that I think I learned from them. I I was learning law from everybody. Mm-hmm. You just do that every day in your career as a lawyer. There's something new to learn in the law. But you know, Walter Dellinger was renowned law professor, uh, brilliant, brilliant man. And, and you know, I learned from him that uh, there is something new to learn in, in every case. Uh, there's lots to learn in every case. And the law is 
organic. Every case is that you're working on is going to be the next precedent. And so you have to look at the law as a body. Seth Waxman was incredibly smart and talented, very strategic. He was very good at um, demonstrating how to be 150% candid with the court, but still vigorously arguing for your positions. He integrates that so well. And he was also a solicitor general. You know, we have to decide what cases to appeal or not, and what cases to take to the Supreme Court or not. And and he would have meetings, and he was really intent on making sure everybody felt heard. Somebody was going <laughs> was going to lose. Uh, their, their decision wasn't going to be, I shouldn't say lose, but their, just, their position wasn't going to be uh, agreed with, but he let he he understood the value of process and giving people their hearing and letting them express their views. And so that was really impressive for me. Ted Olson, I mean, incredible grace through tragedy. Mm-hmm. He he came on, started the job in two thousand one, and we all know on September eleventh lost his his wife in the plane that went into the Pentagon, um, watching somebody work through, persevere through a tragedy like that. He had such extraordinary integrity. Uh, he he revered the office and the role of the office um, and its relationship with the court and the Justice Department. Um, and he was also, on a personal level, um, I don't know how many people know this about him, incredibly humble. Um, he would always talk about other people and promote other people and not himself. Uh, which is very simple, very special. And mm-hmm. Paul Clement, the toughest fighter, he taught <laughs> me you fight for every single vote in every single case. He would never, ever give up. And the other thing he did, which was actually very important to me as a as a working mom, is uh, because he was, I guess, from a generation that had had more exposure to working moms. He was the one who and working dads, right? He mm-hmm. would he would take time off to go. Spend with his kid. We'd have a super busy, busy time. I remember when we had just been working on a case together. He argued it, and the next day was one of these DC snowstorms that shuts down the government. I think while people in Minnesota laugh at us, yeah, shuts <laughs> down the government here. And I went back into work the next day and told him it was good to have a day of rest. And he said, "Yeah, it was great to have a day to have a snowball fight with the kids." And it was <laughs> a little thing, I'm sure, for him to say, but for me, who I'd spent my life trying to hide the fact that I was juggling kids and. And uh, and work um, was it was really uh, uplifting and empowering to see that that it was okay uh, that, that that someone who was in such a leadership position um, was modeling for me that it's it's okay like <laughs> 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 to schedule scheduled in time for the kids so it was really wonderful gift so- he gave me just with that one little sentence which he probably didn't pay any attention to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you mentioned, you know, one of the great things about being in the SG's office is that you get to be a generalist. Uh, but mm-hmm. did you have a particular area of the law that that you really gravitated towards or that you you enjoyed um, those cases the most? Again, I, I, you really love I guess you have to love every case because you're in, in there and you're going to have to stand up and defend it. <laughs> so that makes you love whatever you're doing. But um, I did a lot of cases involving the religion causes, mm-hmm. um, a lot of cases involving Congress's power under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment to pass civil rights statutes like Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, Age Discrimination, Title VII, all of all of those statutes. Um, and then I also had 
um, traffic stops under the Fourth Amendment, and those were incredibly fun areas too. I really <laughs> very different. I, yeah, I those were those were both incredibly interesting because they really um, pushed you back to look at first principles. When you're in the Supreme Court, you know you don't have you have. The court's cases as precedent, but by definition, there's nothing that's controlling in the case in which they granted cert. Um, and really working the case, going back to the beginning uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and tracing the constitutional provisions and, and uh, obviously those two amendments and, and, and what their role was and their purpose and their history and, and finding a way to craft arguments um, was, was incredibly intellectually challenging and just a great, great privilege to argue those cases. So did you have a pre-argument tradition, maybe a song you would listen to or a morning routine to help you get in the zone? Uh, well, so uh, people probably just thought I was crazy. My tradition was nothing that that simple. It was more talking to myself a lot. <laughs> I would have an oral argument with myself nonstop for about a, about a week before argument. The radio would go off in the car. Well, I would take the kids into school and we would have Disney songs or something playing. So the radio would be on them. But once I dropped the kids uh, at school or daycare, then I would turn it off uh, for my commutes and would just talk to myself back and forth, talking out loud. I'm sure anybody that drove by thought I was crazy. I would walk around the Justice Department in the hallways talking to myself back and forth, um, whispering, not out loud, (laughs) but having these conversations in my head, the dialogue that you want to have with the justices. And it's just a great way to make yourself kind of mouth the words out loud um, and immediately feel how you know, this isn't working, or this is a great this is a great way to package the idea uh, was incredibly productive. And then I think um, I would get up when I got up to the Supreme Court the morning of the argument. You would go into either the Solicitor General's office or the lawyers' lounge, depending on where I was working at mm-hmm. the time um, before the arguments. And um, I would kick off my shoes, and I uh, um, would would pace around in my uh, stocking feet again, continuing this this conversation uh, before I would go into the courtroom. And I remember at some point somebody in the in the in the clerk's office coming over, going, "Just make sure you remember to put your shoes on before you go into the courtroom." <laughs> so I think I got to be known as the person who walked around barefoot in the office. <laughs> That's great. Um, so speaking of attire, male attorneys from the office of the Solicitor General wear morning coats for oral mm-hmm. argument. And I remember there was a lot of buzz about what Justice Kagan would wear for her first argument when she mm-hmm. was the Solicitor General. So when you were in the office, what did you wear for oral argument? Uh, clothes. <laughs> no, I wore um, uh, I wore a uh, black black suit, um, skirt skirt and jacket and white shirt, just nothing at all interesting, I guess, it wasn't <laughs> as traditional as we could be. Um, there was, unfortunately, far too much talk about what women were wearing as opposed to what women were doing mm-hmm. in the court. Um, my view always was that, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of an awkward situation with the tradition of the office when it had been all male um, wearing morning suits. And so my view was each woman could, I thought each woman should do exactly what they felt most comfortable doing. If someone felt uh, better having sort of a female version of a morning coat, mm-hmm. um, more power to them. That's what worked <laughs> for them. And me, uh, I I decided early on, I had heard, I don't know if this is true, 
I had heard that there's a woman named Beatrice Rosenberg who was in the criminal division on their appellate staff uh, back in the 50s and 60s, or maybe in the 40s and 50s, but she'd been there for a long time and had and was so expert in her areas of law that she was permitted, even though not in the Solicitor General's office, to argue um, a large number of Supreme Court cases, uh, but was never hired in the office. And at least the lore was, I obviously count, there's no documentation I've been able to find, was that they would let her argue the case, brief and argue cases, but they wouldn't let her join the Solicitor General's office because she couldn't wear a morning coat. She was a woman. And so for me, the decision was, I'm I'm not going to say, aha, now women are here, I can wear a morning coat. My decision was, you don't need to wear a morning coat to be able to do this job right. Definitely. And so I chose to go uh, just with wearing a professional attire for a woman. Definitely. So. And, you know, I've been over at the court and... It's funny when you see, you know, members of the SG's office walking around in in a morning coat. It's like they've stepped out of another uh, another century entirely. So <laughs> I'm glad that you were one of the women who dressed uh, for yourself and to feel comfortably. <laughs> right, but to be clear, other people, you know, I've been, your your friends have made other decisions, and I just think that's that's what uh, people should be allowed to do is make what decision feels best for them. What matters is their professionalism and their appearance, and obviously in their work. That's really all that matters at the end of the day. Definitely. So you previously held the record for the woman who had argued the most cases at the Supreme Court, although your former colleague, Lisa Blatt, has now passed you. Mm-hmm. How, how did it feel when you set that record? Um, it felt, some of feelings, obviously it was a great privilege and, um, you know, to have a moment in history. But for me, uh, it was, I really only wanted it to be a moment, and I was quite candid at the time when people asked that it's not a record I wanted to keep because <laughs> the record, and now I don't even remember if it hit it at 29 or 30 or 31, something like that, um, is embarrassingly low as compared to men. Uh, you know, The record for men is uh, triple digits. Um, it's, it's very high, and, and, and there's plenty of men uh, who've argued way more, <laughs> way, way more than 30 cases. <laughs> with the SG's office and in private practice. Um, and so while it's, it's every every crack in the glass ceiling is is good, um, I my, my most fervent hope, um, and, I, and I'm, I'm happy to witness it, is that people keep blowing right by that number. And my hope is that by the time I'm an old lady, people will, will scoff at the concept of a woman <laughs> just doing 30 arguments. <laughs> so I think uh, Lisa has hit 37 arguments this term. Um, and, and the two Not of you... Not term, I mean total. To, uh, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? A woman well, arguing 37 yes. of the, the current term's cases. Yes, um, that would be something. Did you, did you all view each other a, as competition in a, in a fun way? Well, we had joined the Solicitor General's office together. And so I think it was more, we were just, I, 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 I can't speak for her other than what I'm inferring and that we were both happy just to... Um, be developing practices and uh, and that women and to show that women can and do get arguments and do well in arguments and uh, win their cases for uh, both governmental clients and then very importantly for private clients because there's been a real headwind against uh, women coming out and developing Supreme Court practices. They're, they're hard under any terms, but a lot of the men could come out and say, I was the former solicitor general or I was the former deputy solicitor mm-hmm. general. And 
Lisa and I were only able to come out and say, well, we were we were those names sort of three or four down on the brief. We were assistants <laughs> to the Solicitor General. And uh, it's much harder to develop a practice uh, from that perspective. Um, and so, you know, the, Maureen Mahoney had been a former deputy uh, and had developed a gangbusters uh, mm-hmm. Supreme Court practice. Uh, and I won't say it was just her title at all. She was extraordinarily skilled. Supreme Court advocate, um, but otherwise we were we were trying to compete against former SGs and deputy SGs uh, for cases. So it, it felt more like um, uh, sort of this, this unified front in showing that women can do it. So shifting gears a bit, um, you're a black belt in Taekwondo. How did you get second into second degree this? black belt? Yeah. Second degree black belt. How did yeah. you get into that? So we, we we took my when my son was about to turn five. Um, he's a uh, beautiful, wonderful, gentle spirit. He's now 21, by the way. But uh, we were uh, wanted to make sure uh, he wasn't going to get killed on the playground. <laughs> He's a gentle spirit, and uh, and and more seriously, uh, there were folks in our church, uh, members of our church, who had who also ran a taekwondo studio nearby. We heard wonderful things from other parents about about. Um, their approach to teaching children and training children in these skills. And so uh, we, and David was very interested. We, ta- we told him it was superhero practice because you're <laughs> kidding about it like that. So he loved his superhero practice. Uh, he took to it like a fish to water. He was, um, he really loved it. And uh, I think what I hadn't realized as, as a novice parent, uh, total rank amateur in that process was, uh, a young child spends all their life sort of being your child, uh, and suddenly he had a distinct identity. He was doing something no one else in the family was, and so we would go places, and we would introduce, here's our son David, and he would go up, put his hand out, and say, hi, I'm a yellow belt in Taekwondo. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was really wonderful to see, and then my daughter came along, and uh, we thought, some discipline uh, <laughs> would be good for her before she started school. So she's wonderful, but just an energetic <laughs> child. So uh, she was doing it. And then there, my husband and I were sitting on our, on our uh, tuckuses, uh, getting more and more middle-aged, watching our children exercise a couple times every week. And we just said, I leaned over to my husband and I said, when they're teenagers, they're going to they're going to be able to kill us uh, if we don't do something. And so they had family classes they offered there. So we started taking classes together. It was it, instead of just us driving them there and back, it was suddenly became a family activity that we could do together, and it was a lot of fun. So the family that kicks and hits together stays together. <laughs> Is there anything from Taekwondo that you've brought to your approach to the law? I think I mean that's they're sort of hard to say because I was. I've been practicing for quite some time by at this point, but I do think there's there's a couple aspects that fit, fit my life, and that one is um, I consider myself peaceful, passive type of person. But uh, when the time comes to punch, I, I really like slamming my fist or foot through things, <laughs> and uh, it's it's a great stress relief. But I also feel like you know when I have cases, suddenly uh, you know outside 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 the law. The, the parent role, you want to sort of work things out and find compromises, but I really like fighting, liked fighting very, very hard for clients uh, and figuratively, you know, punching and kicking hard, <clears throat> but always fairly. 
uh, within the rules uh, mm-hmm. to defend. Uh, they teach very much taekwondo is for defense, not offense. Uh, and so to defend somebody, their interests and their rights in the court. And also taekwondo is very much about balance. Um, and it was good. Part of doing the taekwondo was, it was, again, it was another way of ensuring more balance between work and family. We had this this event that we were doing and we were all doing it together and it's it's on the schedule and it helps a lot when you are uh, a busy working parent to to make sure you schedule family just as much as you're scheduling work. That's great. Uh, so shifting gears again, President Obama appointed you to the D.C. Circuit in 2013. What's it like being on the other side of the bench? And do you miss arguing cases? Uh, well, I, I think I just argue cases from all sides now. <laughs> so, otherwise, oral argument is quite different. It's, uh, I mean, there's there's times when I do miss the dynamic of, of, of having a client, developing the relationship, and, and being their voice and telling their story. In court, it's just such an extraordinary privilege and opportunity to be able to do something like that. But I don't miss the stress. Um, it's used to tell my husband when I first got on the bench, I said, the oral arguments tomorrow morning are much calmer than I would be if I were arguing. <laughs> yeah, we can go to a movie. So, uh, um, and it's, you know, it is certainly different in that respect. But I think um, for me, oral argument is a very important part of the decision-making process. When I was arguing as an advocate, the moot courts, uh, I quickly learned were not really dress rehearsals, but were actually just an integral part of developing your strategy and your thinking about the case, it really pushes you to have people come to it cold and ask questions that they think judges or justices will ask. And so now the oral argument process itself is, is much like that, where I really get to, it's, it's all the work I've put into a case beforehand. Um, it's, it's incredibly valuable for me to be able to ask the questions I have, the con- raise the concerns I have and hear from the advocates. But also I get to do which you don't get to do as an advocate, and that is listen to my colleagues, ask their questions and their concerns and express their views, and and I get to go, that's a really great idea. I hadn't thought about that, and I get to factor it in. Whereas when you're an advocate, you don't get to go, oh, good <laughs> question, Judge. Never mind. <laughs> so, so it's really, it's really um, incredible. But I feel like, you know, now my, my client is the justice system and getting... I tell my law, my law clerk, getting getting the law as right as a humanly possible in in every case. Um, so I still feel like I, I'm I'm advocating. It's just a bit more of an abstract client. So I read that you have uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's old locker at the D.C. Circuit, and that you had to fight to get that. So tell me <laughs> why why was that important to you? And it was no taekwondo fight, to be clear. It was simply, <laughs> it was simply a, a, a pestering a repeated request. So. Um, uh, it was the, the, the locker. All it is is a locker where your robe hangs um, in the robing room, and they they have all the nameplates on there of whoever who who had what judges had the locker before you. And when I saw the one with just it just says Judge Ginsburg, <laughs> Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg, there, um, I, I I did repeatedly ask if I could have mine there because she is um, someone who is as I've as I've said to her, I think you know without her, I don't know if there'd be a me. Uh, in, in in my profession, she yeah. was a groundbreaking person uh, in the law uh, and as a jurist. She, uh, you know, fought to have opportunities in the law at the, at the highest level at a time when uh, women 
generally were consigned to either behind the scenes rules or wouldn't you like to be the secretary? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and she was a working mom uh, raising kids like me. Um, and, and she was then arguing in court the very cases that opened the doors for women like me to have equal opportunities to attend uh, law schools and practice law and, and have equal rights in all aspects of our professional and personal lives. So just to think, and I know it's a little thing, but just to think that, that the robe I'm putting on uh, is hanging where hers did. And um, she opened that door for me, and now my hope is that you know I can put on that robe and honor her and and everyone who came before me by doing the job at the absolute highest level of professionalism and ability that I can bring to it, which is all she was ever arguing for. Um, it, it feels it, it's it's a good reminder to me uh, every time I go on the bench of um, what people have done before me. And in the and in whose wake I'm I'm following. Oh, definitely. So your former colleague Brett Kavanaugh recently joined the Supreme Court. Tell me about mm-hmm. working with him. He was incredibly collegial to work with. Uh, he he really was uh, a good person at modeling the uh, we can disagree over law but disagree agreeably, <laughs> um, and and still have. Uh, um, professional relationship um, that's distinct from case by case disputes, um, and I know sometimes that's hard for people on the outside to understand. Or in this day and age where everything seems so divided, I think uh, the courts, um, I hope, can be a good role model in showing people how to make um, collective decisions uh, and and to do even disagree agreeably uh, when you have to. So he was good. He was he. When I, well, I can't remember, I think shortly after my confirmation, um, he, I was trying to wind down a private practice at the time, and he kindly reached out and, and had breakfast with me just to talk a little bit about the court and, uh, and just to be welcoming in that regard. So what was it like watching him go through uh, an extremely contentious confirmation? So it's, I mean, for... Everybody, I think it was a it was a, it was a steering process for our nation, for um, I think everyone to 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 witness. And um, you know, for me, it was uh, there were many layers to it. Um, one was, you know, as a woman, I think like many women, it brought forth memories of. Uh, I'm saying nothing about the merits of the contention one way or the other, but just mm-hmm. the discussion brings forth memories of uh, our own experiences with sexual assault. And that was hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, uh, I'm a woman of Christian faith. Um, and I, you know, there's nothing I can do about this process other than to pray. Um, and um, I told Brett I was praying for him and his family. I was praying for... Um, Dr. Ford and her family and praying for our nation. And I didn't you know, feel like there was uh, anything more constructive I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the one of the reasons is that um, maybe this is what happens as you, as you get older. You know there's 
whenever there's big, contentious political fights, at some point, politicians will move on and the cameras and the media will move on. And there's still people who have to live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's family members uh, that are deeply affected. And so I was praying not just for uh, Justice Kavanaugh now, then Judge Kavanaugh, um, and Dr. Ford, but for their families and friends who, like me, sort of have to sit on the sidelines um, and watch this. And all we can do is hope for the best for and pray for the best for our nation and that people will um, be able to go pick up their lives and move forward in a healthy, stronger way afterwards. So on onto a happier topic. I've spoken mm-hmm. with a lot of former law clerks about their experiences, um, mm-hmm. but I'd love to hear from from your perspective. What lessons do you hope your clerks will take away from their time clerking for you? My hope is, I think they would all tell you that they work very very hard. <laughs> <laughs> that, that I'm, uh, I, I ask a lot of law clerks. But I figure it's one year. Uh, for many, it's very, very, very early in their career learning about the law. And so I want them to spend a lot of time doing a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. I think writing is grossly undertaught in law schools, but it's the coin of the realm for lawyers. And so they do a lot of writing. I want them to come away uh, as better writers. I want them to understand how the process, legal process works. And so... We have, for every case that's being argued, we have a group case discussion with all law clerks involved, unless someone's recused, obviously, Um, because I want them to see that you can't quickly jump to conclusions about, you know, I like this position, I like that position, Mm -hmm. Uh, that that the depth and rigor that you have to think about any position that you're advocating. Um, So I like, I want them to see their initial assumptions disassembled. I want them to see that, you know, just find a case here or there is not enough, but you have to keep pushing. You have to argue cases, reason cases. As an advocate, you're arguing cases. As a judge, you're reasoning, trying to decide cases, um, building from first principles all the way up through all the precedent and text and regulations, whatever it is that we're having, record that we're, that we're dealing with. Uh, I want them to know how hard this work is. I want them to know why they should work hard, most importantly. Mm-hmm. And that is that, you know, the law is a service profession. It is a service to the people of the that you're representing for a court, for a judge. It's to the people of the United States uh, that we are public servants. Um, but then when you're representing someone as well, you are a servant to that person. You're their steward through their justice system. It's their case. Um, as we wrestle with the law, we need to always remember that there are people behind there. The relationships with clients were very powerful to me in inspiring my advocacy when I was a practicing lawyer. And knowing that we are making rules of law that will um, have enormous impact, can have enormous impact on people, is something I want them... I don't want the law to be as... I want them to remember that. I don't want the law to be abstract of them. I think law school can make it too abstract. You talk and fight about the law, uh, but you don't talk about the the courage of the people who uh, brought lawsuits or are willing to stand up 
to exercise their rights. Um, and I think that's, I think people need to appreciate that before they go into the profession, but it's a client's case. Mm-hmm. And we were just privileged with being there ambassador at a time when they very much need help navigating what is their third branch of government. So is there something you particularly like doing with your clerks? I've heard about uh, Judge Carlos Bea's Whiskey Fund and playing ping pong with Judge Kevin Newsom. I'm, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm not so as, as much fun as either, uh, <laughs> as either, uh, either of those, um, but I do like to... Uh, when we do this case discussion, um, one law clerk is assigned to be a, a devil's advocate, and I really like watching them grow and learn through the year. Um, and they always tell me afterwards how much they like these case discussions. Um, and I also like the fact that we usually begin and somewhere in the middle and again at the end we'll veer off of the case and into what's going on in somebody's life or what they did over the weekend or who's got a birthday or a baby's coming or whatever. And so we really mix the two together, um, law and life. And, uh, I, I try to do lots of brown bag lunches, uh, with, with my colleagues here on the court or bring in some speakers, uh, so they can really, especially when, when my fellow judges and their law clerks will come over, it's really nice to learn about developing relationships apart from cases. Otherwise we only interact with other judges when they're on the panel. And I want them <laughs> yeah. to see everybody is as human beings and learn about them because relationships really matter. Um, I also um, believe that you need to turn the law off sometimes and go out. So we try to schedule outings, but it's not a consistent thing. We've done everything from Segway tours to DC duck tours to (laughs) uh, um, uh, an escape room. Uh, So I try to set up fun, fun outings like that where we really can just turn our, turn our brains off and, and enjoy uh, our, our time together. <laughs> that would be great to see a. a it group. was embarrassing how badly we all did in the escape room. <laughs> all, <laughs> I was these, all, say. This, all this education. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have anything in your chambers that reflects your personality? Um, well, I have a uh, concrete brick that I broke in Taekwondo with my foot. Uh, <laughs> I have that up there just just to let them know not to get out of line. So, <laughs> uh, no, it's actually there. It's sort of a believe that you can do things you never thought you could. Um, one, both becoming a judge, which was beyond a dream for me, but uh, I remember you know, starting Taekwondo and thinking, am I ever going to make it to black belt? And then for the black belt test, they bring out the concrete and just thinking the first time, they did it once before the actual test. Um, they brought it out. And I, yes, I would have never in a million years thought I could do this. And the first time, uh, it must have been 50 tries or something. They were, it was in the evening. They were ready to go home. I went, no, no, let me keep trying. Let me keep trying. Um, and the feeling when you actually break it, something that you would have been in a million years you never thought you could do. Um, it's a great, it's a great feeling. They were very patient, patient with me and letting me try. <laughs> I couldn't walk for about a week afterwards because <laughs> if you don't break it, it is exactly is exactly what it is is driving your foot into a concrete block. So, <laughs> but it was it was a, it was a good hurt because it was an incredible sense of uh, persevering and, and really pushing myself. That's great. Pushing outside the envelope. I have lots of pictures of my kids and husband around here, and then I have um, some Beatles memorabilia because I'm a big Beatles and John Lennon fan. Is John Lennon your favorite? John Lennon's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> all right. One final question, something mm-hmm. we ask all of our guests at SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? I think Thurgood Marshall would be the one I would want to talk to. I think just to hear his more stories about his career, but also mainly to to talk to him about, um, you know, we all we, we look at Thurgood Marshall and Brown versus the Board of Education. We look at it now because we know the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he didn't when he started his career have he didn't know how it would go, and and people had been fighting for equality like he had for decades and decades and decades, you know, since post Civil War, and had been shut down by the Supreme Court and the courts, and not just shut down, but, you know, chased out of town, threatened with lynching, um, extraordinarily risky and dangerous career, and how after all the setbacks and all the times uh, the court cases hadn't worked, um, I wanted, I really want to hear from him how he, how he had hope and courage uh, to believe in our legal system, uh, to make it be the best it could be. Um, and how he supported his clients. And I'd like to hear about his clients' courage and their stories, um, because really um, we have a great justice system, but it is only uh, justice is what we make it be. Mm-hmm. It's not some external. We have structure there. We have scaffolding, but justice is something we have to accomplish and make happen every day in our lives, whether we're practicing law or working as a judge or justice and people like him who who saw what our justice system could be and made it happen are incredible heroes. And I would just want to talk to him about how he came to have that courage and faith and, and how he did it and how his clients did it. They were very brave people. Well, I think that would be a wonderful conversation to have. And thank you, Judge Millett, for joining me on SCOTUS 101. Thank you so much for allowing me to be here. It's a great privilege. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Americans have almost entirely forgotten their history. That's right. And if we want to keep our republic, this needs to change. I'm Jarrett Stepman. And I'm Fred Lucas. We host The Right Side of History, a podcast dedicated to restoring informed patriotism and busting the negative narratives about America's past. Hollywood, the media, and academia have failed a generation. We're here to set the record straight on the ideas and people who've made this country great. Subscribe to The Right Side of History on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher today.